Turn with me to uh, Hebrews chapter 1. I'll be, I'll be real honest. Um, I'll be really honest. Um, we, we, have, we have an enemy. The Bible speaks of uh, an enemy, the devil, Satan. And uh, sometimes uh, that seems like a real abstract thought, you know, that we would have this enemy that's, that's uh, seeking to devour um, believers, but I think I become I become more aware of the presence of an enemy um, because I think he starts showing up at my house on Saturday night, and I think I've noticed this as well too. If I can characterize it this way, I think um, I think he's sitting on my chest when I'm getting up in the morning. I think it's just on Sunday mornings in particular, um, and so there's been a, there's been many a Sunday morning where I have um, just felt this, oh, just come, and I'm like, oh, I don't. Uh, something is just, my spirit is causing me to not, to be very uh, fearful and intimidated when I come. And I think I felt that last week. I felt that on a couple of other occasions and stuff too. And um, so if we can, uh, I want to pray for a moment before we get started. And uh, just to... to uh, to get ourselves ready. I, the temptation is often to try and say some things that are very clever. Uh, uh, the temptation is often to say something funny, although that never works. Every time I do try to say something funny, it never really works. My, my daughters always joke about, Dad, you're just not funny. And so um, and so the temptation is to say something clever, some say something interesting, to say something where people are nodding their heads and going, oh, that's really cool insight. Um, and I just, I want to avoid that temptation. Because I want to just present to you Jesus this morning. Okay? Just present to you Jesus. Um, Charles Haddon Spurgeon uh, was a, uh, a preacher at the end of the 19th century into the beginning of the 20th century in London. He was known as the Prince of Preachers, one of the most popular preachers at that time. Had a ministry that spanned like 60 years or something like that. It was really a long time. And had this really amazing beard. And um, if you've seen pictures of him. But um, uh, he, when opening to this text, when he actually preached on this text, he said these words, Tonight all I could do is show you Jesus. All I could do to you tonight is show you Christ. Because the passage that we're dealing with does nothing but reveal Jesus in all of his magnitude. All I could do is preach Christ. And I want to take uh, Spurgeon's, not just his words, but that spirit this morning as well, too. Um, but I think that we have an enemy that doesn't want that to happen. And so uh, let's begin our time with the word of prayer before we uh, read our scripture passage and so if you would uh, pray with me. Father God, you are um, the name that is above all names. Your son has the name that is above all names. And as we've been singing about his majesty and um, his rule and his authority, God, we, we still are aware that we have an enemy that is prowling around like a lion seeking to devour and God, we, uh, we ask for your spirit to be just present here this morning. That you clear away any distractions, any 
um, any things that, that the, the enemy is, would use to, to uh, try and stop this word that you have given us, your scripture, from being revealed to us. God, we ask your spirit to just illuminate us and open up our eyes this morning. And that you keep the enemy away. And that this can be done so that you can be seen more clearly and that we can uh, glorify you not only here and in this time, but also as we go uh, in our lives, in our vocations, uh, in our homes, in our relationships, in our communities. That you can be exalted in all things. God, um, give me words to say and uh, um, clarity of thought and give us all uh, open ears to hear what you have for us this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen and amen. We are in a series on the letter or the book to the Hebrews. Um, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. We know it's kind of like a sermon, more than a letter. It's, you know, it was a letter. It was actually delivered to a group of people. But it's, uh, it's in sermon form. And we looked at the end a few weeks ago. We looked at the beginning last week. And I would like for us to read these four verses together. And uh, we'll be reading. If you, if you do not have a Bible and need a Bible, raise your hand. We will make sure somebody passes out a Bible um, to you. We're going to be reading, uh, as our scripture reading, the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 1. And it goes like this. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That's the reading of God's word. We begin by pointing out that the writer of Hebrews, we saw this last week, the writer of Hebrews begins by Showing that God has spoken. The God of the Bible is a God who speaks. He reveals himself. And this, as we saw last week, is an amazing act of his grace and his mercy. The fact that God would speak to people who've rejected him and what rebelled against him, yet he would still communicate to them, is one of the most profounding truths of the scriptures. God is a God who speaks. He spoke long ago. He spoke at many times in many ways. He spoke through prophets. He spoke through a burning bush. He spoke through a talking donkey. He spoke, uh, spoke audibly to specific servants like Moses, as we'll see in the coming chapters. God is a God who speaks. But as it says, he in these last days, he has finally and definitively and authoritatively spoken a point in time in his son, in his son, who we know is Jesus. But the writer of Hebrews doesn't get to mentioning Jesus's name until chapter two. He refers to him 
as his son. And he wants to establish this to his audience right away. You know what? Um, you're going through some difficult situations. You are in a culture that's wanting to, um, to form you into its mold. Uh, we do not, it was a culture that didn't want to have um, a countercultural movement of what God was doing in his church, in his people. And so uh, they were tempted to abandon that and to start to accommodate to the culture, maybe even morph their own biblical ideas and morph their own ideas with the surrounding culture or to adopt their worldview. And the writer is saying, don't do that. Don't abandon Christ. And he has to establish that first and foremost by saying, God has spoken. Let me just start there. And he's spoken in his son. He's spoken in his son. And today we're going to be looking at seven statements Seven phrases or statements on the superiority of the Son. Now, the writer of Hebrews, as we've pointed out, really uh, knows the Old Testament very, very well. The, the letter is called To the Hebrews, um, although it was probably a mixed church. The, it's written to the Hebrews, so we, we would have a, a Jewish understanding and we have a, a knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, and the writer quotes the Old Testament uh, all over the place. And one of the significant numbers of the uh, Old Testament scriptures, the Jewish scriptures, is the number seven. Seven is the number of completion. And so it makes sense that the writer would list off seven statements when he's talking about the superiority or the completeness of his son. And next week, we'll actually see he continues the rest of the chapter by quoting seven Old Testament passages, stringing together seven passages. So it, it's like the writer has crafted this opening very deliberately, very artistically to say, uh, this son is the one true, complete son and the complete revelation of God. And so today we're going to be looking at those seven statements about the son. As I said, uh, I could do nothing else but to preach Jesus to you. I can do nothing else but to preach, preach Christ to you if we're faithful on what this text says. So you're welcome to follow along. Uh, we're going to be looking at these seven statements. I've grouped them into three different headings. And the first heading is Jesus is God's eternal son. And the first five statements actually would kind of fall under this heading. Jesus is God's eternal son. And the first one is Jesus is the appointed heir of everything. As it says there in verse two, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Now, heir and inheritance is a very important concept in the Old Testament. Um, that's, uh, that was how you relayed your, you carried on your family line and you kept your property and your land and everything in the family. Um, it's not too different than what we would have today, except it was very, very vital and very important in that culture. When family, when family was, uh, was very important to getting along in the world at that time. So heir inheritance is a very, very important theme. Um, Abraham didn't have an heir. He didn't have any children. And what was he going to do with all of the sheep and cattle he had accumulated, all the land? Well, what land he had, he was kind of traveling around. But he didn't have an heir to pass this down. And God finally gave him an heir. So heir and heir, it's very important. The heir is the rightful owner of all that the father possesses. The heir is the rightful owner of everything that the father possesses. 
And it would usually get distributed, the inheritance would usually get distributed among the different sons, right? And the firstborn son would get more than the others. We see this in one of Jesus' parables of the prodigal son. The, one, the younger son comes to the father and says, I want my inheritance, my share of the inheritance. Which is basically like saying, um, I, I kind of wish you were dead. Can you just give me my property and stuff now? And so, um, and you know how the story goes. He ends up squandering it, but then comes back to the father and the older son is upset. The older son, as the firstborn, would get a larger share. The younger son, it's a very important theme all throughout scripture. So what the writer is doing here is saying, um, since God has spoken in his son, carrying on that idea, he has made the son the heir of all that the father possesses. This is quite an exalted statement. If you're talking as God as the father and he sent his son, the son is now the possessor of everything that the father has. And what is that? He has become the heir of all things. It's all Jesus's. Everything. Everything belongs to Christ. And this has some uh, some immediate implications for us when we view our possessions and not just our material possessions, but also our spiritual blessings that we have. All of those come from Christ and through Christ. Christ is the possessor of everything. Which, uh, when, when I, as I was studying this passage, I immediately came to mind um, Jesus' temptation. After being baptized, the, the spirit led him into the wilderness. Forty days didn't have. And the Satan came and said, well, why don't you just turn these stones to bread? That was the first temptation. Um, then he takes him to the high point of the temple. He goes, why don't you just cast yourself down? He goes, God will send his angels to protect you. And Jesus rejects both of those temptations. But the last one's interesting. It says he leads him to a high mountain so that he can see all the kingdoms of the world. It's the same word that's used here. All. Everything. If you, I'll give you all of that if you'll just bow down and worship me. And Jesus says, do worship the Lord God and him alone. But I couldn't help but think he, he was trying to tempt him something that Jesus is already the heir of. He's the heir of everything. He owns everything, which has implications for us because he owns all of our stuff as well, too. It's all God's. You ever think through those things? If you look at your stuff, we walk. as I was studying this, I started looking around in my office at all of my books, and I really like my books. I have, I really like my book collection, and I'm so, but then I was sitting there going, these are not mine. These are Christ's. And I need to remember and remind myself that these are Christ's and they're used for his fame and his glory and for his name to be advanced and not just my information, right? You ever look around your house and look at your stuff and go, wait a second, Christ is the heir of all of this. John Ortberg wrote a book a while back called um, It All Goes Back in the Box or something, Right? And I think it's that idea. You can play a game. You take out the game. Our girls play Monopoly and we everybody divides up the money. And, uh, you know, one ends up accumulating a lot more money, which is uh, often Amelia. 
I don't know what she's got, uh, you know, a green thumb, that kind of green thumb, maybe. Um, and she ends up accumulating. But at the end of the game, it all goes back in the box. Christ is the heir of all those things. That's quite a statement about who Jesus is. It has a huge impact for us. But that's just the first point. He whom he has appointed the heir of all things. He's just getting going. The writer continues with this. Jesus is the instrument of creation. The instrument of creation. Through whom he created the world. Wow. What a profound statement. Jesus is the one by whom, through whom, the world, and actually the Greek word there is uh, uh, ion, it's ages, it's like the ages. So it's beyond just the, don't, don't think just the physical world. That was a term that was a very large term, could be translated as universe. The ages of ages. So Christ created the cosmos. Christ created all of, I mean, this would be kind of like a parallel word to all, everything. Okay? So the Son created all of those things. So what does that mean immediately? The Son is not himself created. The Son is not a created being. What he's saying here is that the Son is pre-existent. Pre-existing from the beginning, from before the beginning. The Son has always existed. He did not come into existence. At some point in time, he is not a created being. This is... Uh, this is essential. This is a core teaching about who Christ is. So many um, heresies and false teachings about who Jesus is spring from the idea that he is a created being. They might think of him as divine or they might say he's a divine person or a divine teacher. But he still, when you when you really scratch down to it, he becomes just a part of created part of creation. The writer here leaves no room for that. He says, no, no, everything in creation has come into existence through him. Means he predates creation, predates time, predates matter, predates all of those things. The son is pre-existent and he's the instrument through uh, creation. And the writer of Hebrews isn't coming up with this on his own either, too. The, um, the, uh, the uh, disciple, the apostle John, in his gospel begins this way. In the beginning was the word. And the word, as you see, if you go down to verse 14, it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is referring to Christ. And so he says that word that became flesh actually was in the beginning. Before the beginning. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And John even adds this. And without him, not anything made that was made was not anything made that was made ah, i mean we could go in several places and very clear jesus is not a created being everything came in existence through him so it makes sense with the first one why he's the heir of everything right because everything was created through him Colossians, uh, Paul says the same thing in Colossians 1, uh, 15. And you might want to keep your finger there in Colossians because there's a couple of other passages with that as well. Colossians, which is right after uh, Philippians. 
Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Chapter 1, Paul writes this in verses 15 and 16. Uh, speaking of the Son, of verse 13. Um, verse 13, it says, His beloved Son. And in verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. There's that firstborn inheritance language as well, too. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Christ is the heir of everything and he is the instrument of creation. And he's just getting going. Let's look at the third one. Jesus is the personification of, of God's glory. This is the third statement. He is the personification of God's glory. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Radiance. This is the word that's... Uh, it, it's the only place it occurs in the, in the New Testament. But it's the actual radiance of light. It's a brightness of a light that would come... Uh, like when you would look at the sun and you can't even see it. It's that kind of thing. The radiance but it's the radiance of God's glory. God's glory. In the Old Testament, God's glory is associated with his presence. When God's glorious, when God showed up in a spot, it became so glorious a sight um, that people almost couldn't look at it. Like, uh, like you see in the very end of the book of Exodus, where God had given him instructions and said, I want you to build me a tabernacle where the, the Ark of the Covenant will be. Have it in the middle of the people so that I can dwell with my people. And at the end, in chapter 40, they build this thing. And then all of a sudden, it's God's glory descends on it. And it filled the tabernacle. God's glory showed up in a pillar of fire at night and a cloud during the day. The idea is like a beaming, glowing cloud during the day. Light, radiate light. And you see it in particular, and I have a reference down there for uh, uh, Exodus chapter 33. This is where Moses goes to God and he says, um, God, can you show me your glory? And God's like, I can't quite show you my glory, but I'll show you, I'll show you a part. And so what he has him do is go stand in like a crack in the mountain. And he goes, what you do is you go in there and I'll put my hand over you and I will pass by. And after I pass by, you could kind of uh, take a glimpse. Uh, the Hebrew is my, my hind parts. Um, so God says, you can watch my backside. The backside go by and it was the, it was the radiance of God's glory. Just even the backside of it. Um, God's glorious presence showed up so much so that when Moses did come into God's presence, he himself radiated with having been in God's presence that he had to wear a veil. You're familiar with this? That when he had to go to the people, he had to wear a veil to, to cover his face from the radiance of, of his glory. Read all of that in Exodus chapter 33. That gives you a really good idea of what's, what's behind here. And this is what he's saying. That Jesus himself, the son, is the radiance. That radiance that came, that comes from the key is the radiance of the glory of God. Basically saying, this is God himself. The presence, the emanating presence of God is personified in, in the son. 
That's number three. Number four is Jesus is the character of God's nature. The character of God's nature. As it says, uh, the writer says, he is the exact imprint of his nature. Exact imprint. The word there is character. Uh, I have it in, is it, on, is it on the slide? No, I didn't put it on the slide. It's on your handout. That's um, the Greek word. But you could write next to that character. It's where we would get our English word character. And this is, uh, this is what you used to describe the marking or like the engraving of a coin. The, the stamping on of the exact image that you want stamped on the coin. That's the term that's used here. And that's what's referred to Jesus as the son. He is the stamped, uh, the stamped image of, of what? His nature. The bedrock essence of God. The deity. Jesus is that stamped, express image. The son is. And the writer, back in Colossians chapter 1, uh, Paul says the, the same thing, and we read this in verse 15. He is the image. It's a different word Paul uses there, uh, but it's the same idea. He is the image of the invisible God. So Jesus is the character, and that's what I mean by character. If you think of an engraved like image, um, he is the character of the nature of God. See how all of these are building and building? You cannot, in reading this and studying this, you cannot escape the fact that what the writer is saying here is, the Son is God. The Son is God. And number five, Jesus is the sustainer of the universe. The sustainer of the universe. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now you circle that word upholds. It kind of it kind of gives the, the idea that Jesus is kind of like I don't know if you've seen these pictures of like Atlas Shrug, you know, like or Atlas, right? They, they, so Atlas is the big, strong, muscular guy, and he's got the world on his shoulders, and he's kind of supporting it there. That's not quite the idea. The, the word here is for to carry a load or to carry a burden. Uh, it's the same word when Jesus, uh, when uh, four friends were bringing the paralytic man to Jesus, they were carrying the man. So what the term is used here is Jesus is not like statically just holding the world. He's carrying it to completion. The son is carrying it. This is, this is a term for movement, not static. Jesus is upholding the world, the universe. He is the, he, there's not a single thing out in the universe that happens without him knowing exactly what's going on. And he is directing all of it to his purpose. That's the idea behind this term. So there's no, um, there's no deism here. May have heard me use the word deism before. Deism is the view that there was a God who has created everything, kind of wound it up like a clock, and then just kind of left. And the universe is just kind of running along. And, you know, God, he may come back at some point, but he's ultimately just disinterested in what's going on. That's deism. That's actually, when, in surveys of what it is that actually Americans believe, um, uh, Deism is closer to being the idea that people have about the very nature of God. That God is, there is a God, he's a creator, um, 
But, you know, he's not actively involved in the created world. This is, there's no room for that here either. God is actively involved, and he's done so in his son. So this is the eternal. Jesus is God's eternal son. So now that's where, that's where he begins with that. And then he focuses now on the last two. Uh, with Jesus is, Jesus is God's incarnate son. So he spent some time kind of laying the foundation of Jesus being God's eternal son. Now he moves to the incarnate son. And by incarnate, we're talking about what I referenced there earlier in um, John chapter 1, verse 14. The word becoming flesh. Incarnate means to, to become flesh or be, be in flesh. And so this is what he says here. He says, Jesus is, number six, the only purifier for sin. The only purifier for sin. Now, cleansing is um, purification for sins. Very, very important uh, concept also in the Old Testament as well, too. There was uh, God had established if he was going to be present, you know, if his glory was going to be dwelling in among his people, a people who were defiled, who were not holy, didn't have, uh, could not come face to face with God and live. But yet God wanted to dwell among his people. So he had to create a way in which they could be purified, so to speak. And this was done through animal sacrifices. So God gave instructions. And we're going to get into this in Hebrews because this is central to uh, the writer's argument here. But uh, so if man was going to to be in present in God's presence, he needed to be purified from sin. And so God gives the um, the method on how it is that the people of Israel could be purified in the sight, the animal sacrifices. Um, so, God, by the way, God gave these instructions um, on the the sacrifices. God came up with these. Man didn't come up with this on their own to try and appease a God. God gave the instructions. Okay? If you have ears to hear, hear. Um, Jesus is the only purifier for sin. So what he said, this, the background behind this is the day of atonement. The one big day when the high priest would go into the tabernacle and would make atonement for the sins of the people. And it says this in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 29 and 30. God says this, and it shall be a statute to you forever that on the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, that month was Tishri in uh, the Hebrew calendar, which, by the way, is um, Tuesday, Tuesday at sundown. Jews will celebrate Passover. They're going to celebrate uh, or excuse me, the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. You see that maybe it's printed on your calendars at home. Yom Kippur. That means Yom is day. Kippur covering or atonement. That is Tuesday at sundown. So in Leviticus chapter 16, it says on that day, the 10th day of that month, you shall afflict yourselves, which means basically to, to fast. You shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day, you shall uh, uh, for on this. Uh, let me catch myself. Not you shall. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. For atonement to be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord. Clean, that's the same term here, purify. Before the Lord 
from all your sins. The writer of Hebrews says here, um, after making purification for sins, one little statement, he's bringing to a point the entire sacrificial system, and he says, by the way, that's, that characterizes the work of the incarnate Son. Purification for sins. Which I find is fascinating. If you were to ask, if, you were to, if somebody were to ask you the question, what would be the one, if you could summarize in one statement in a couple of words, what would you, how would you summarize the work of Jesus' ministry? If you were to ask that to some pastors, I think you would be, uh, and there, there would be good answers, don't get me wrong. There would, you would probably hear some things like, well, Jesus is, you know, he's a great teacher and he was a great guide and he helps us to live the better life. And you've heard me talk about this stuff over and over again. But it's so important that you get this point. When the writer of Hebrews spends five statements talking about the eternal son and then spends one to describe his earthly incarnate ministry, what does he say? Purification for sins. And I guarantee you're going to ask some pastors this. They will avoid this one. Not just not mention it. Avoid it. Avoid talking about someone substituting themselves, shedding their blood in your place for your sin as your substitute and representative. This is a teaching that is in um, deep trouble in churches. Deep trouble. And it, it's easy to see. You could be in churches and they'll talk about Jesus. It has all kinds of Jesus-y language. But they will undermine this teaching. And this is terribly important. Because if we do not have this, we, we've lost a lot. The writer of Hebrews picks one statement, purification for sin. This is a big one. And, by the way, you can't purify yourself for sins. Jesus didn't come to help you become better. I mean, God wants you to, he wants you. We saw this in, uh, in the very first week in this series. He, God equips you to do his will. He wants you to follow his will. But his fundamentally did not come so that to make you a better person. That wasn't Jesus' mission. Jesus' mission was to purify for sin. Purify for sin. And you can't purify yourself. Atonement shall be made for you. For you. We're going to get into this in more detail as well too. But Colossians chapter 1. Um, uh, no, actually, let's, we'll go to number 7. I actually put the, the, the scripture reference there, Colossians 1.17, Psalm 33. Actually goes to uh, the sustainer of the universe. Parts. I put those in the wrong place. Jesus is God's incarnate son, and the essence of his ministry was to make purification for sins. And now, having gone through uh, Jesus is God's eternal son, Jesus is God's incarnate son, he wraps up with the seventh statement on Jesus as God's exalted son. Jesus is God's exalted son. Jesus is the enthroned ruler over all of the creation that he has inherited and all of the creation that he made. The enthroned ruler, he says this, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty 
on high. Now, right hand was a sign of authority. So, you know, don't, don't get in your mind that, that there's an actual bearded, you know, long white-haired God on his throne, you know, like Monty Python. It's not like that. Um, right hand of the throne would be the, the source of a power and authority. This is my, you would get this, the, the phrase, my right hand man. That's this idea. Jesus, the son, is the, at the right hand of the majesty on high. And this is, um, this is, I think, what Paul sees this Jesus when he encounters Paul on his road, on the road to Damascus. When he's knocked off his, his horse and he's blinded by, there's the, the radiance of his glory again, right? He's blinded by Jesus. Who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. This is the, uh, the vision that, that um, the vision of Jesus that Stephen sees uh, in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen has brought before the council and he gives his long speech and he ends uh, his uh, speech with uh, these words. Um, now, when they heard these things, you know, Stephen was, he kind of recounted all of Israel's history and then he, he says some really, um, some nice things. You stiff-necked people, you know, uncircumcised in heart and ears. I mean, that'll always, you know, win friends and influence people. In verse 54, he says this, or, uh, it says this. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth, gnashed their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw what? The glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. And with this, they cried out loud and stopped their ears and rushed together at him to stone him and to kill him. This is what Stephen sees, what the writer of Hebrews is describing here. The enthroned ruler over creation. And Jesus is not uh, he the writer of Hebrews says he's sitting down. Means that his work, particularly the work of purification for sin is complete. So Jesus is God's enthroned ruler. Do you see how uh, how our friend Charles Haddon Spurgeon's words were pretty appropriate? I can do nothing tonight but to preach Christ. Well, I could do nothing this morning but to preach him as well too if we're faithful to the text. So the key issue for the author beginning is the nature, the character, the essence of who that son is. Before we could get into really practical matters about how it is that you can, uh, can how you can manage in the world, as he's saying to his audience, as you're going to be encountering these things and you're going to be struggle with this temptation to abandon and to merge your beliefs with other, with other beliefs, your worldview with other worldviews, to try and to accommodate and to appease all of the elites of the culture, um, as you start to kind of maybe want to get fuzzy on some of these things, I want you to know from the very beginning, God has spoken. He's spoken in his son, and this is who he is. This is who the son is. I need to establish this for you right now, and we need to establish it for each other as well, too. Jesus is God's eternal son. He is the appointed heir of everything. 
Not just an add-on to things that we want. He's the owner and possessor of everything. Jesus is the instrument of creation. He's the sustainer of the universe. So he's not a created part of the world in which we are the center. And he's not wound up the world and left. He carries the universe. He carries the world to completion. Jesus is the personification of God's glory and the character of his nature. Not just a picture or an image of what God is like, by the way. Very well-meaning teachers will say, well, Jesus gives us a picture of what God is like. I'm kind of with you, but no. Jesus is God. He's not just what God is like. Jesus is God's incarnate son. He is the one and only purifier for sin, not a guide to take us deeper into our own spiritual or sinful selves. And we'll get to that next week. Jesus is God's exalted son. He is the enthroned ruler over everything. He's not a chief of staff for our administration. He is not uh, a court counsel for our own kingdoms. He is the enthroned ruler over everything. So the only way, To properly face the challenges that we would all face, we have to establish at the beginning who this son is. Who this son is. Whom he has appointed as the heir of all things. The heir of all things. And through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the experience exact imprint of his nature upholding the universe by the word of his power making purification for sins sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high this is jesus this is who we we serve and it's this jesus we need to keep in our mind with this we're going to transition to communion now We're going to think about that sixth statement, the purification for sin, because we're going to be celebrating the meal that Jesus gave us to mark that event, the purification for our sins, the shedding of his blood and the breaking of his body. For on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup after the meal and said, this is the cup of the blood of of my covenant, which is shed for you. Whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen? Amen. Ben, would you come on up? And then uh, I'm going to close with a word of prayer. And then when you're ready, the elements are over here on the table. Come up at your, uh, your own time and, uh, and take of the, the Lord's Supper.